We at Tisky Sour woke up this morning wondering if there would be a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson called, would 54 letters go to the 1922 committee? They haven't as yet, but we did get one incredibly dramatic development. There has been a defection. A Conservative MP has crossed the floor and joined the Labour Party, now sits as a Labour Party MP. To discuss all the dramatic events of the past 24 hours, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? Hi, Michael. It's good to see you. Another dramatic day in British politics. It is. I mean, normally, sometimes we feel like, oh, January, we're going to have to like struggle to find things to talk about. Like, this is, this is top stuff. Obviously, a lot of people, understandably, very pissed off about it, but it's entertaining if you follow politics. Boris Johnson's premiership is now hanging by a Fred. Speculation about a potential vote of no confidence has been rife since last night. And today, a defection. The wave of mutiny followed this comment from Boris Johnson on Tuesday. I can tell you categorically, categorically that nobody told me and nobody, nobody said that uh, this was something that was against the rules, that was a breach of the, of the COVID rules, that we were doing something that wasn't a, a work event because, uh, frankly, I don't think, uh, I can't imagine why on earth it would have gone ahead or why it would have been allowed uh, to go ahead. That line that nobody told me the party was against the rules went down like a cup of cold sick. Boris Johnson was, of course, the person who made those rules. That disastrous excuse was followed by speculation that a group of Tory Red Wall MPs, so people who were all first elected in 2019, were plotting to topple their leader. And then, in a dramatic twist, just 10 minutes before PMQs, one of those MPs defected. Christian Wakeford was elected in 2019 as Tory MP for Bury South. Keir Starmer used PMQs to welcome him to the Labour fold. You can see Wakeford behind Starmer in a Union Jack face mask. Can I start by warmly welcoming the Honourable Member for Bury South to his new place in the and to the Parliamentary Labour Party. Mr Speaker, like so many people up and down the country, he has concluded that the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party have shown themselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserves, whereas the Labour Party stands ready to provide an alternative government that the country can be proud of. Mr Speaker, the Labour Party has changed and so has the Conservative Party. He and anyone else who wants to build a new Britain built on decency, security, prosperity and respect is welcome in my Labour Party. In response, Boris Johnson said this. The the Conservative Party won Bury South for the first time in generations under this Prime Minister with an agenda of uniting, uniting and levelling up and delivering for the people of Bury South. And Mr Speaker, we will win again in Bury South at the next election under this Prime Minister. So Boris Johnson thinks he'll be Prime Minister at the next general election. No one else seems to think that's particularly likely, but the exact timing of any departure is up in the air. Towards the end of PMQs, though, David Davis suggested when he thinks that departure should happen. Like many on these benches, I spent weeks and months defending the Prime Minister uh, against often angry constituents. I reminded them of his success in delivering Brexit and on the vaccine and many other things. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, 
he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. David Davis, I think, was assuming Boris Johnson would know what that quote meant because it was one of the lead-ins to, to Winston Churchill becoming Prime Minister and Boris Johnson has, has written at least one biography about him. But Boris Johnson did stand up and say, I've got no idea what you're talking about, essentially. We are seeing the beginnings of hasty reorganisation of power within the Conservative Party. The phrase rats fleeing a sinking ship obviously comes to mind. It's been said multiple times today on Twitter, elsewhere. We see it in the sort of strategic silence or sort of running away by potential leadership candidates like Liz Truss, like Rishi Sunak, and in the very loud distancing from Boris Johnson that we're seeing from MPs who who don't have any immediate leadership ambitions, but whose position feels somewhat precarious because they come from seats that are not dyed-in-the-wool Tory seats. They are worried about being maybe tarnished with Boris Johnson's unpopularity and with the general sense that the Conservatives are still that kind of sleazy party that they've always been. And I'm, we'll talk about it later on in the show. I don't think we'll see, I don't think this is necessarily the beginning of lots of other defections. I think most people will make, most MPs will make the calculation that Boris is a dead man walking, that there won't be much political loss right now in vocally opposing him. And we'll just sit it out until, until the, it, it blows over. And I don't think we're going to see much eagerness right now, even from those people who do want to replace Boris Johnson. I don't think we're going to see a huge amount of eagerness to do that now because I don't think anyone would want to take this party into a May by-election and only have a few months to sort of clean up the mess um, the mess that he's he's made. So I think the question is, what do the next few months for Boris Johnson look like, given you know if he doesn't resign? I don't think we've seen him be held to the fire, his have his feet held to the fire as much as we have in the past few months. You know, normally he swiftly sort of scapegoats or deflects and sort of gets it, it's sort of water off a duck's back more often than not. He throws under the bus either individual colleagues or entire communities, whatever he needs to do to get through a scandal. My concern is that over the next few months, what we will see is a ramping up of some of the most toxic parts of Boris Johnson's brand, of his of his political brand, as he attempts to recover his reputation. Uh, you know, we've already seen a, a taste of it with re revamping militarized anti-migrant rhetoric. We've seen it in the sort of unprovoked renewed attack on the BBC. We've seen it dropping the mask mandate. All of these are ways of trying to recuperate his reputation amongst key parts of his base and also people in power, you know, people who own the, the media outlets and run the media outlets that are holding his feet to the fire right now. And so I wonder that in, it's in these times when he feels the most shaky, the most precarious, that he will become the most toxic. And it's really important that the Labour Party, that the opposition don't allow that to happen. So in terms of a broad bird's eye view, 
that's what I think is going on with the Tories. And I think when it comes to what Labour should do, it's important to not, and generally people who oppose the, the Conservatives, now is not the time to like sit back and relax and enjoy the spectacle. Now is the time to be very vigilant, to be very aware and to mitigate the collateral damage, which will likely be migrants, the disabled, public services, people with disabilities that will likely arise from Johnson's attempt to rehabilitate his career. And, you know, we know that there's nothing he won't touch. Nothing is sacred when he is in these kinds of moments of truth, as it were. I agree with you about um, there not being many other defections. We will talk in a moment about why this particular MP had particular motivation to switch sides. He's in quite a unique circumstance in in his constituency. Also interesting, Dahlia, that your sort of predictions or at least suggestions about what could happen next involve Boris Johnson being prime minister for a little bit longer. There have been suggestions today that actually that defection will mean that Boris Johnson can stay leader of the Conservative Party for longer because it has almost rallied MPs around him. Obviously, not to the extent that they want to keep him as leader for a long time, but when you've just suffered a defection, that's not necessarily a time when you want to say, okay, now let's have that leadership challenge. Potentially, it was such an explosive thing to do that now the Tories are going to try and gather themselves a little bit. Obviously, that could all change when Sue Gray's report come out. But as we've said many times on previous shows, there's reason to think that won't be particularly hard hitting. She is not at all independent, actually. They'll call it an independent investigation. She's not independent. We don't know what's going to be in it, but I doubt it's going to be something which is so explosive that Tory MPs have no choice but to get rid of him. And I think today's events actually mean they're more likely to rally around him, at least for the time being. James LaRoff tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour, Tory MPs will do whatever serves their individual interest. MPs in safe seats will maybe ride things out. Those in red wall and marginal seats may act, but are there 54 of those? What comes after Boris may be worse. It may be better for Labour for him to limp on. I actually think everything in that uh, tweet is absolutely spot on. We are going to be talking about those those different groups, the people who are in red wall seats who are worried they're going to lose their seats. With the people in safe seats, obviously they're less stressed than the people who are in marginal seats. I think for them, the issue is more timing because it does seem like no one in the Conservative Party really wants to go into the next general election with with Boris Johnson as, as their leader. So what will be key here is, is when people like Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss encourage people to send in those letters because I think they are they're waiting for a better time, as Dahlia said, potentially after those May elections. In the fallout from Downing Street's party gate, Bury South MP Christian Wakeford has defected to Labour from the Conservatives. It was an explosive moment in Westminster that took almost everyone by surprise, and that included his mate and fellow Tory MP, Andrew Bowie. Hearing Christian Wakeford, the Berry MP, is defecting to the Labour Party just as Prime Minister leaves number 10 for PMQs. Well, that is quite incredible. We saw Christian Wakeford there as the list uh, of seven, one of them calling for him to go. Defecting to the Labour Party. I mean, the first I've learned about this is that tweet uh, from well, Laura. That, uh, we've all, there. That's the first um, uh, Christian is a very good friend of mine, an excellent MP, and I would be surprised, if the, to say the least, if that was the case. So you don't um, think that's true? I haven't spoken to Christian no. today. I couldn't say categorically, but I well, would be very surprised if Christian was about to jump ship to the Labour Party right now. Right. Why? Because he's a solid Conservative who's determined to carry on representing his constituents within the Conservative Party. Certainly the last time I spoke to him, that was the case. Um, But I I would have to speak to Christian. 
That was all painfully awkward for Andrew Bowie, who might come to regret saying Wakeford is a solid conservative, clearly not solid enough to stay in the Conservative Party. But who is Labour's newest MP, and is he, at heart, a true blue Tory? Well, unsurprisingly, as a Tory MP until today, Wakeford has a very right-wing voting record. He voted with the Tory whip to remove the right of unaccompanied children seeking asylum to join legally resident family members in the UK. And he voted for the £20 cut to universal credit for the police and crime bill and for the nationality and borders bill. Like any good Tory, he also seems to hate the Labour Party. These WhatsApp messages were linked today. So you've got this. Christian Wakeford says, Labour bunch of the C word. I'm not going to say that out loud, but you can read it for yourselves. And we have another. So here he's quote tweeting Sarah Brickcliffe. And she says, Angela Rayner tipped to shadow Chancellor for the Duchy of Lancaster, shadowing Michael Gove. And Christian Wakeford says, F me, that'll be one to watch for the giggles. So I wonder how she's feeling about the newest member of the Labour Party. Nonetheless, despite that voting record, despite those Attitudes, you've seen there expressed in those WhatsApp messages. Starmer has welcomed Wakeford with open arms. Dahlia, from the perspective of Keir Starmer, was this the right thing to do? We are in quite risky territory here because what does it say about the Labour Party that Jeremy Corbyn and countless other Labour activists have been suspended or expelled or told that they're not welcome in the Labour Party because they once campaigned for the Green Party or something. Yet a man who doesn't take climate change seriously, who voted to cut universal credit, who voted to strip people of their citizenship without warning, who voted to separate migrant children from their families, unaccompanied migrant children from families that they might have in the UK. Yet he is apparently so welcome. And it there's an argument to be made, obviously, that in order to win, Labour have to win over Tory voters in order to win an election and that this is a start. But this isn't a dyed-in-the-wool Tory seat that would have been particularly difficult to win back as a Labour party with a real Labour MP person with Labour Party person standing. You know, this seat was won by four hundred by four hundred votes. And in the next election you don't have that powerful single issue of Brexit, which I think is really why a lot of these seats were lost to to the Conservative Party. And let's not forget that accepting these defections, and if although I said, you know, earlier on in the show that I don't think we will have this mass this mass sort of defection. I think that this is probably, it's not going to be much more than this one. But if you do, and in this case, accepting that that defection, it means that Labour can't put someone progressive in that seat. They can't run someone that actually reflects what I hope are Labour values, even though that person could probably win in that seat. So now we're stuck with Barry South being represented by essentially a Conservative in, in Labour clothing. And also by by doing this, by by accepting with open arms in this way, you you risk alienating your base coalition, without whom you have no chance of winning an election. It's a non-starter. And and last but not least, obviously, from a long-term moral and, and political standpoint, we we don't win in a long-term sense, in a profound sense by appearing at least to concede so significantly on some of these key 
issues by making it seem that you are welcome in the party if you hold all of these kinds of views. Because even if you get that short-term win of an election, you still end up during your tenure in leadership, in government, you end up still laying the groundwork for future draconian governments to go even further than they, than they otherwise would have been able to. So a perfect example of this is we had three terms of a Blairite government, but that laid the groundwork for many of the really draconian parts of the conservative government. Things like hikes on tuition fees, things like the hostile environment, some of the things that we're struggling with the most. So so from a, from a bird's eye view, I think that we are on troublesome ground when we start saying, oh, like this is a party that, that doesn't really have its own red lines. It doesn't have an ideological backbone. It's just a sort of catch-all dustbin for anyone who doesn't like the, the current conservative party. That's a risky strategy. And I think it also could end up playing into this sort of reputation that Starmer already has of essentially not really being driven by anything explicit, of not being driven by anything in terms of his principles or in terms of his ideology, but being basically driven by his desire to become prime minister. You know, that that's what I feel when I when I see this person's voting record and the open arms with which he has been welcomed. I think that, that the idea that, oh, this is a start to gaining back some people who voted Tory in the in the election, I don't think it's it's enough of a signifier of that to really make up for the fact that it represents a lot of other things that I think are quite toxic to to the Labour Party brand, as it were. I take a few of those points. I mean, I do think this is risky for Keir Starmer. And I think what's a real shame is that yes. Well, unless the CLP deselect this person, that there won't be a socialist candidate standing at the next election in this constituency. I think that how this helps Keir Starmer is just the bulletin that people will hear on the radio, which is Tory MP defects to Labour. Because m- most people don't follow politics that closely. They're not going to know what this guy's voted for. All they'll hear is Tory MP defects to Labour. And I think what that will suggest to people is, oh, it's a normal thing to move from voting the Tory party and being someone who supports the Tory party to going and voting for the Labour party. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a queue, elite queue is what you call it. So it's someone at the, you know, the pinnacle of politics saying it's legitimate to go from Tories to Labour and given the Labour party need to win quite a lot of Tory voters at the next general election, especially in the kind of seat in which Wakeford is standing, although not precisely that steep. We'll talk about that in detail. I think that could be significant. When it comes to... The Labour members of Bury South CLP, I think there is presumably a lot of ambivalence there. This is what Lewis Goodall heard from an officer on the executive of the Labour CLP in Bury South tonight. So he says, Bury South CLP, a place of distinctly mixed feelings tonight. One officer on the exec tells me, I want a Labour MP in Bury South, one that shows up to vote for children to be fed. Labour stepped up, Rashford stepped up, Wakeford did not. I suppose Keir Starmer would answer, but we'll now... Now he will have to step up because he'll be whipped by the Labour Party. And if he doesn't vote with the Labour Party, we'll we'll kick him out again. But some legitimate concerns there, very much so. However, we can debate whether or not this was a good idea. Obviously, from the perspective of Wakeford, 
it's incredibly cynical. This is not motivated by a discovery of socialist principles, but rather that he was pretty certain that as a Tory in Bury South, he would soon lose his seat. Some context here. Wakeford's 2019 majority in Bury South was a paltry 400 votes. And the main reason he won in 2019 is because then MP Ivan Lewis, a staunch anti-Corbynite, was suspended from Labour following allegations of sexual harassment. He was accused of repeatedly touching the leg of a 19-year-old at, at a Labour social event and inviting her back to his house afterwards. A year later, Lewis resigned from the Labour Party, citing concerns about anti-Semitism and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and stood as an independent. However, in that election, instead of pursuing his own votes, Lewis encouraged his constituents to vote Tory. So in these circumstances, I feel I have no choice. But to say to you today, I want you to vote for the Conservative candidate, Christian Wakeford, in this election. I'm sure that many of you will do that with a very heavy heart. But the top priority for our community, all sections of our community in Bury South and the country, is to stop a Corbyn government that would wreak such havoc, havoc on the things that people most care about. So in this constituency, you had a former Labour MP who had, I mean, resigned in, well, the circumstances speak for themselves, don't they? He was accused of, of sexual harassment. He then resigned, citing anti-Semitism, and he's now telling the electorate to vote for the Tory. So even with all of those exceptional circumstances, the Conservatives only won by 400, right? So you can easily see how this constituency would go back to the Labour Party. And that is what current polling suggests. So it seems as if According to projections from JL Partners, this is based on a poll of red wall seats, the Tories would go from winning the seat by 0.8% in 2019 to losing by almost 20 points if there were a general election held now. And what's interesting here is you might think that that polling would encourage Wakeford to take a chance to call a by-election and stand for his new party. But while he has previously co-sponsored a bill that would force a by-election for defectors, it's unclear whether Labour will call one now. That was a question put by Sheila Fogarty to a flustered shadow minister, Sarah Jones. Christian Wakefield himself co-sponsored a bill uh, mandating by-elections for MPs who change party affiliation. Are you gearing up for a by-election in Bury? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, who knows in terms of the time you be? we seem to have elections every five minutes. <laughs> I don't mean the public are pretty fed up of them, I think, because we've, as an MP, only been in a few years. I've had three. Um, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. If I was a politician's PR person, my, my first rule would be never, never awkward laugh. It never makes the situation less awkward than it otherwise would have been. It's a good question, though. Will there be a by-election? I think on principle, if someone defects to a different party, you should have a by-election. People voted in that constituency, unfortunately, for a Conservative MP, not a Labour one. So why would one not happen, given the polling? Well, one risk is that if there were to be a by-election, there could be dirt which would be thrown at this former Conservative candidate. Manchester Young Conservatives tweeted this today. Here's a photo from June the 13th of Wakeford at a house party straight from a Tory black tie in Manchester when large gatherings were still banned. He also drank so much tequila he chundered glass houses and that. Now, it's important to say Manchester Young Conservatives quickly deleted that tweet. That's potentially because it implicates them in breaking the rules at the time. 
although we cannot confirm that. We, of course, also can't verify the date this photo was taken and therefore whether rules were broken. But the point stands that there are going to be a lot of people within the Conservative Party who have every interest of calling this guy a hypocrite, of saying that actually uh, this person does have no right to stand up and say, I'm leaving the Conservative Party because I'm so outraged by all of these parties because maybe we can't confirm either way. Maybe people have evidence he was at some himself. That would obviously undermine any by-election campaign which was supposed to be fought on the grounds of, of the decency of the Labour Party and the, the scandals of the Conservatives. Dahlia, what do you think about a by-election? Do you think Starmer should risk that and encourage this guy to, to put himself to the electorate? I think that this would be an important moment for him to stick by some form of principle. And it's not fair on those constituents for them to just be at the mercy of what is essentially an opportunistic man in the form of Wakefield, that, you know, they voted in a particular way in the election and they deserve to have another say if their MP decides to dramatically change direction. And if it is the case that there is a lot of dirt on this on him, if there's a lot of risk in that sense, then Labour should have thought about that before they welcomed him with open arms in the way in the way that they did. So I don't think that there is, even though it is a risk for Labour, I don't think that there is a principled position that you could take that would explain not having a by-election. People being sick of elections certainly is a very weak source and very transparent way of getting out of, of a difficult situation. And I don't think it helps Starmer's reputation for being kind of a little bit slimy and a little bit jammy. Presumably, I would imagine that people in Keir Starmer's office in Keir Starmer, they're just, they don't want anything that distracts from the current controversies facing Boris Johnson. So even if there's a 10% chance that a by-election could backfire, they're, they're not going to go for it. Let's move on to our next very much related story. The process to remove a Conservative Prime Minister outside of a general election is the following. 15% of Conservative MPs must write to the chair of the party's 1922 committee, which represents backbench Conservatives MPs. Then, within around 24 hours, a vote of no confidence will be held among all Conservative MPs, and if the results show a majority back the leader, they remain in post. If a majority vote against the leader, they must resign. Then an election for their replacement in shoes. There are currently 359 Tory MPs, down from 360 this morning. So to launch a leadership election, 54 need to send a letter to the 1922 committee. The process is secret, so we don't know how many letters have so far been handed in. But Tory backbencher Andrew Bridgen thinks the threshold could be reached soon. I think we're quite close to the threshold for the 54 letters. Um, I was told last night um, by colleagues from the 2019 intake that they were on the move and they were going to be depositing a large number of letters today. Um, I think we'll, I'm fairly comfortable we're going to get to the 54 threshold this week, which means that the confidence vote will probably be Wednesday next week. Andrew Bridgen there mentioned the 2019 intake of MPs. That is most notably the group of MPs who won seats in the so-called Red Wall. They were originally assumed to be loyal to Boris Johnson because he won, Boris Johnson won them their, their seats. It was his Brexit position that was seen to be so successful there. But the relationship has gone very sour. As you'll know, one of the plotters has now defected to Labour and it's an explosive situation that will have to be handled pretty sensitively. 
Unfortunately for Boris Johnson, sensitivity hasn't been on show. A cabinet minister told The Times, it's pretty sickening. They were only elected because of him. Most of them are a load of nobodies. It's nuts. Some have suggested that comments like that could push Red Wall MPs to make extreme action, potentially more of them crossing the floor like Wakeford. But personally, I think if they do, the reasons will be far more mundane. A poll released by JL Partners for Channel 4 News shows that in Red Wall seats, Labour are now 11 points ahead of the Tories. And that would mean they would lose all but, or the Conservatives would lose all but three of the 45 seats held in those historic Labour heartlands. So you can see why they might want to get rid of the Prime Minister, which polling shows is incredibly, or who polling shows is incredibly unpopular in those seats. When it comes to whether voters think that he's doing a good job, Boris Johnson is on minus 35, which is a score 33 points lower than Keir Starmer. Dahlia, put yourself in the shoes of a Conservative MP elected in 2019 and a historically Labour seat. Do you hand in your letter to the 1922 committee today? I probably would. I think it is probably a strategic decision uh, at this point. I think that if I wanted to defect, the Labour Party would be clearly willing to have me. doesn't matter what I, who I am or what I've done. But I think that that's probably a little too risky. I think the halfway house of sending, that, sending a letter and adding to the numbers needed to create a, a challenge would be strategic because if you are a Red Wall MP, you know, these aren't seats where you can just win by being a Tory. You know, this isn't Suffolk. In fact, without the issue of Brexit, which I think was a leveraging point in a lot of these areas in the last election. And in for many for many voters, it was non-negotiable and it was something that really drove how they voted. Now you don't have that issue. Brexit has happened. It's done. The Tories don't hold much weight there. And I think that the kind of reputation of sleaze and corruption and this idea of one rule for them, one rule for us has been very evident and very public in the way that the Tories have conducted themselves over the past year or so, the past few years. And so that will reaffirm many of the historic suspicions that people in these areas will have of the Conservative Party. And if you're running in the next election, you want to distance yourself as much as you can from that without necessarily actually jumping ship and changing party. And I think that being able to, to say in, a, in an election, well, you know, I don't, I took a stand when this was happening is probably the only way that you have a chance in hell of, of winning that seat again, unless, although who knows what's going to happen over the next few years. On the other hand, I don't think that that would be enough to really distance yourself from what this conservative government has come to represent, because I think a lot of people have suspicions that a lot of people in the Conservative Party knew that this was going on. A lot of them knew that that email invitation was sent out to 100 people. It was attended by 50 people. It was one of probably multiple different events that happened. We saw that picture just then that was posted, although obviously we can't verify it, it was posted by the Young Conservative Association. I don't think that just saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say something publicly now that it's clear that Johnson is kind of a bit of a dead man walking. I don't know if that's going to be enough to separate these MPs from the reputation that the party has developed over the past few months, and especially 
in light of how the Conservative Party is likely to have been traditionally and historically seen in these areas, which is as party for the rich, a party for the elite. And it was Brexit that pulled them pulled them towards that party. And without that, I think that the reputation precedes the party. And so this is probably a last attempt by those MPs, not a last attempt, but a solid attempt by those Red Wall MPs to sort of say, you know, I'm a new kind of, of Tory. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like them. I was how we got Brexit done. Um, by having all of those, those, that kind of conservative majority. But I think that's what we're seeing. That's the calculation that we're seeing happening right now with these MPs. Let's go to our next story. Since the multiple revelations about Downing Street parties, Rishi Sunak has been notably absent. But he's now been back in front of TV cameras, even if he didn't hang around for long. This interview starts with Sunak being asked whether he believes the Prime Minister. Of course I do. The Prime Minister set out the truth. Of course I do. The Prime Minister set out his understanding of this matter in Parliament last week, and I'd refer you to his words. As you know, Sue Gray is conducting an inquiry into this matter, and I fully support the Prime Minister's request for patience while that inquiry concludes. Dominic Cummings, Dominic Cummings and Dominic Cummings and others have said that the Prime Minister was warned this party shouldn't go ahead. If the Prime Minister lied and lied to Parliament, he should resign, shouldn't he? Well, I'm not going to get into hypotheticals. The ministerial code is is clear on these matters. But as you know, Sue Gray is conducting an inquiry into the situation. I think it's right that we allow her to conclude that job. And you support, and, and you support the Prime Minister Thanks. unequivocally? Your microphone. Oh, gosh, thank you. I love that. Oh, gosh, thank you. Dahlia, standing up and walking away is, is one option when you're asked if you back your boss. Was that a smart move by Rishi Sunak? Look, if you're going to storm out of an interview, you have to have a clear exit plan. It has to be very dramatic and intentional. You can't get tied up in your mic. It undermines the whole thing. But I mean, to me, this just makes Rishi Sunak look like chicken shit. It it makes him look like someone who is trying to have his cake and eat it, who is angling for the leadership and so is refusing to, to back Boris Johnson explicitly because he knows that he doesn't want to be associated with what's been happening, but also refusing to properly back him. So he to, also refusing to to speak out against him because he doesn't want to sort of upset the power balance right now within within the within the government. And it's slimy, and it kind of also fits with his general reputation of kind of running away when things get get tricky. His notorious trips to California when the hospitality industry is collapsing. He is nowhere to be seen during all these different, whenever the latest scandal comes up. Um, he avoided PMQs last week because this was when Johnson first started coming under fire. But I think that, you know, he is, he is popular enough within the party that it probably doesn't matter that he kind of has this reputation. Although if I was a Tory MP, I would sort of be thinking, or a member of the Conservative Party, I'd be thinking, is this guy really going to hack it as prime minister if he s- walks out of an interview where it's not exactly a massive surprise that a journalist would ask him a question about this? Like you think that he could have had a sort of pivot answer or some kind of answer to this, just that he could just, if he hadn't stormed out of it, this interview probably wouldn't be news and it was a fairly predictable question. So whether or not this will end up being a smart move by Sunak, it kind of depends how long people's memory on this will be. I think on the one hand, he'll always have it 
on his records that he didn't make a stand when the prime minister partied as people died. And also he probably, this probably isn't the first time that he found out that this was happening. As we've sort of spoken about, he literally lives next door. Those garden parties happened within earshot of where he lives. He probably, I mean, allegedly, we don't know for sure, of course, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if he had an inkling that, that these things were going on. Um, all of that could be mobilized against him in either a leadership challenge or, challenge or in an election. But all in all, I think that memories are very short in politics. And I think that he is enough of a darling of the media that these kind of things will be swept under the rug. They won't matter. And he still has a pretty clear shot of the Tory leadership and of a fairly easy ride by the media, as we've sort of seen so far. We're going to talk about the very strong position Sunak finds himself in, quite you know, exceptionally strong position actually, because he is he's far and away the favourite to be the next Tory leader and therefore Prime Minister. And that's because he's popular among MPs. They choose the final two candidates. And then he's also popular among members. They're the people who get the final say. So they choose which of those two candidates wins. And a recent YouGov poll showed nearly half of Tory party members, that's 46%, think that Sunak would be a better leader than Johnson. Only 16% think he would be worse. And crucially, he has the best ratings among all of his competitors for the leadership. It also seems that the electorate still likes the guy. Polling for Channel 4 News in key red wall seats shows that Sunak has a net positivity rating of 22%. For every other leading Conservative that rating is negative. So there's an enormous gap there between Rishi Sunak and everyone else. So why is Sunak, a former banker, cutting through so well? Well, there's no denying that he's slick, telegenic, difficult word to say, and a good operator. But it's also likely to be because voters see Sunak as the guy who, throughout the pandemic, was reasonably generous with money. He was the person associated with the furlough, most importantly. The reality, though, is that Sunak is not a tax-and-spend chancellor, but a billionaire and a Thatcherite whose wife, Ashkata Murphy, is reported to be richer than the Queen. Sunak's policy commitments are also pretty right-wing. In last year's budget, Sunak quietly reversed a decision to raise capital gains tax. That was a decision that benefited the wealthy, and it also cost the public sector £14 billion. Sunak is also reported to be planning a range of financial incentives for the wealthiest before the next election, including a 2p cut to income tax, a reduction in inheritance tax, and the scrapping of the highest tax rate. Again, policies that overwhelmingly favour the rich. At the same time, he has attached a health and social care levy to national insurance. And this is a tax which affects workers and especially those on lower incomes. It isn't paid on income from rent or investment, so it doesn't hit Sunak's supremely wealthy friends. Paul Johnson of the Institute for Fiscal Studies described these proposals as indefensible. He also said to introduce the health and social care levy, which essentially only affects workers, then to cut income tax, which also benefits people who receive their income from rent, occupational pensions and other holdings, discriminates in favour of the wealthy. Now, if you've heard of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, you'll know they're not a particularly left-wing organisation. They're, they're famously at the centre of politics. Of course, discriminating in favour of the wealthy means for multimillionaire Sunak, discriminating in favour of himself. If Sunak wins a leadership election, do you think he's going to be able to hide his inner Thatcherite all the way up to, to a general election? That's what seems key to me. I mean, that depends more on 
what the opposition does, what social movements, what the Labour Party, what critical media like us do, more than anything to do with, with Rishi Sunak. I think the question is, will the opposition, will the opposing forces be organised enough, be firm enough to cut through and make it clear that the public know who this person really is. It's going to be very difficult because more than I think anyone else that I can think of right now in politics, Rishi Sunak has been the darling of the media. You know, do I don't know if, if, if you remember, Michael, when he had that puff piece in the allegedly neutral BBC or the allegedly left-wing biased BBC that literally portrayed him as Superman. Now, I, I can't think of, of any other politician recently that has had that kind of coverage. I can think about politicians that have had equally extreme coverage in the opposite direction, but not puff pieces to, to that extent. So it will take a lot of work to cut through that. But as you've just outlined, we have more than enough data to know exactly who this man is, exactly what his ideology is. And I think it's very important that we don't allow him to claim popular things like the furlough scheme as his own. The furlough scheme was not something that is in any way part of or aligned with Rishi Sunak's underlying ideology. His underlying ideology is completely and utterly against the idea of offering people support regardless of whether or not they are able to work. That was literally, because the furlough scheme was because he was literally, his hand was literally forced by a global pandemic and by pressure from the, the then Labour leadership. Let's not forget that he actually, the furlough scheme in its early stages was actually incredibly, for a lot of workers, was really insufficient for self-employed workers, for gig economy workers, for independent contractors. All of these people were left out of that initial furlough package, which just goes to show what Sunak's priorities are. And to me, that's not, even if you don't bring the ideological stuff into it, the political stuff into it, that's not a sign of competence. And that's really the kind of brand that Sunak is trying to portray himself as, which will likely be quite popular given the kind of chaos that Boris Johnson has represented. So Really, it is up to, to us, it is up to the opposing forces, and it's particularly up to the Labour Party to offer a strong and clear voice to cut through what will be an incredibly favourable and fluffy media response, I can presume, to Rishi Sunak becoming leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister. Baz Cam's with a fibre austerity for the poor, vulnerable and other Tory non-voters coming. I'm very worried about that. My particular position is whoever replaces Boris Johnson is going to be worse than Boris Johnson. So the only hope is that they're more likely to lose at the next general election. Let's go to our next story. Breaking the COVID rules on socialising is one thing, and Boris Johnson seems to have done plenty of that. But breaking the rules on self-isolation when infected with COVID is quite another. And that's exactly what Johnson is accused of doing in March 2020. You remember on March the 3rd, Johnson was bragging about all the hands of coronavirus patients he'd been shaking on a hospital visit. Well, Victoria, I can tell you that I, 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 I'm shaking hands. I was, at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know. And 
Two weeks later, he came down with a bad cough. Staffers are then reported to have repeatedly asked the Prime Minister to self-isolate, but he refused, glibly dismissing their concerns. A source told The Times, he said he was strong like a bull and banged his chest. He was advised that he might have COVID, but he rejected it. He had a really bad cough, but he was walking around the office and holding meetings. Finally, on March the 27th, Johnson went into self-isolation. But even then, it seems he just couldn't follow the rules with staff being reported to have entered his room to fix his computer. Only 10 days later, on April the 6th, Johnson would end up in intensive care where he nearly died. The Times story chimes with what Dominic Cummings had to say in this interview with the BBC last October. Cummings suggested that two weeks after his contact with the coronavirus patients, that's a similar timescale to when the Times is saying he had a cough, Johnson insisted on visiting the Queen. Uh, I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to see the Queen. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? Of course you can't go and see the Queen. He said... Uh, well, that's what, I, that's what I do every Wednesday, sold this, I'm going to go and see her. Uh, I said, um, I really don't think you should do that. Look around this office. As we spoke, we were in the outer office just outside his study. It was basically empty, partly because people in that office were isolating at home with symptoms. So I said to him, there's people in this office who are isolating. You might have coronavirus, I might have coronavirus, you can't go and see the Queen. What if you give, what if you go and see her and then give the Queen coronavirus? Like obviously you can't go. So the possibility went through your head at that moment that the Prime Minister might pass coronavirus to the Queen? Yes. How did you persuade him not to do it? I just said, if you go and you give her coronavirus and she dies, what, what are you going to... You can't do that. You can't risk that. It's completely insane. And he said, he almost basically just hadn't thought it through. And he said, yeah, holy shit, I can't go. So if we take Cummings' word, luckily he persuaded Boris Johnson not to visit the 93-year-old Queen. But if we take what's said in The Times, his irresponsible behaviour could have quite possibly passed on coronavirus to a number of people in his office. Dahlia, the idea of, of staffers asking Boris Johnson to self-isolate and him actually refusing, I find that quite upsetting, actually. There's two things here. First thing is that I do kind of wonder, obviously, this is incredibly shocking, but I do kind of wonder why these lockdown parties are the thing that has made Johnson fall. Why is this the line that now means we are able to really have a conversation about the way that this man has governed during during a pandemic because he's shown this kind like this kind of contempt this kind of contempt for the virus this kind of contempt for the pandemic this contempt for the expertise of of medical and scientific experts has been evident from start to finish as we saw on the 3rd of March bragging about shaking the hands of coronavirus patients all the way through to dropping the mask mandate over and over again, even though it makes no sense and goes against the scientific recommendations, walking around hospitals without a mask. And this has happened throughout. It didn't just happen at the beginning when you could say, oh, you know, maybe we didn't know enough. Although by the 3rd of March, I'm sorry, we knew enough 
about about the nature of this virus to know that you shouldn't shake hands with people who have coronavirus and then go on and go about your daily activities, talk less of go and visit someone who's 93 years old. So this is where I, I'm, and perhaps this is something that historians or whatever will try and figure out at some point, which is why is this the moment where we decided to recognize that throughout this entire pandemic, we were governed by a politician who had absolutely no sense of the gravity of what he was undertaking, of no sense of the gravity of the situation. And that's why we ended up with, despite being in you know, a so-called developed country, having a socialized healthcare system, having a considerable sized economy, we ended up with such a considerable death toll. But the second thing that I was thinking about was when he got sick, I remember all of these commentaries coming out from people who knew Boris Johnson and were talking about how him being sick and being hospitalized will humble him because he's always had this attitude towards being sick or being vulnerable that he believes he's too strong. He's too sort of, he can't be touched by vulnerability. He can't be touched by sickness. And I remember at the time thinking this reveals so much about the way Boris Johnson views the world is he views the world as people who are strong and people who are, you know, make it through people who are worthy and people who are weak and vulnerable. And it's so interesting how he equates his own so-called strength to just his natural ability, his natural giftedness, and not to the immense material privilege that he has had. And it not only tells me a lot about how he thinks about himself, because let's not forget when he was hospitalized, any other person other than the prime minister might have actually died if they had it as severely as he did. You know, he would have had the highest level of care that would have been possible in this country because of his position of power. But also it shows me, tells me so much about how he views people who struggle people who are marginalized, people who are vulnerable for whatever reason. It tells me that deep, deep, deep down, he thinks it's because they deserve it, because he doesn't deserve it. And you can see that in that comment about him saying he believed he was strong like a bull and banged his chest, and therefore he felt like he was immune from consequences. So that's a really convoluted way of saying that even though like, you can listen to that and think, God, this man is just so incredibly dumb, it also actually tells us so much about the way that he views the world, the way that he views people who need support, or who need or who have been disenfranchised by the world. He views it as, well, you're just not as good as me. You're just not as strong as me. And that's why I deserve to have, I and the people like me deserve to have power and protection and material wealth. It's just, I will be glad to see the back of it, which as we can probably tell, won't be that long before we do. The strong like the bull thing is really interesting as well, because I think what it also shows is just a lack of empathy, because the people telling him to self-isolate, they weren't necessarily saying, oh, Boris Johnson, you need to rest. So he said, no, I'm strong like a bull. I can keep going. They're saying, you might give us this deadly disease, so please self-isolate. All he could think about is himself. No, I'm strong like a bull. I don't need to self-isolate. Well, maybe you need to self-isolate for the benefit of other people. Maybe you could try for once in your life, think about the, the needs and fears of someone who isn't you? And he clearly failed that test as he has done over and over again throughout, I mean, it seems his whole life and his whole career and his whole premiership, which hopefully will be coming to an end very soon. 
Dahlia, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you tonight. Thank you for bearing with us. We will be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.